this is funny. I was supposed to be wrapping up two minutes ago. <laughs> it's fine. That was awesome. Um, no, what was it? Oh, that's funny. I'm going to borrow this. My, my stand was stolen by that swindler Scott. It's called alliteration. I'm so mad. I just found out, man, I just found out like 20 minutes ago that this clicker I've been using the whole time has a laser pointer on it. You know how much fun I would have had all week if I would have known that I could have been doing this the whole time? I know, if you're falling asleep, <laughs> you're, uh, you're blind. <laughs> um, obey this! <laughs> Just kidding, I wouldn't do that. Um, well, hey, everyone. Uh, so tonight, uh, sadly, this is my last night. It's my last night here. Yeah, I know, boo, boo, boo. I didn't see that with the, with the response. Boo! Leave us! Um... Uh, but, but I'm excited about that, um, not because I'm excited to leave, uh, but I'm excited about what we're going to be talking about and how we're going to be finishing up. So again, we've been in this, uh, we've been in this series of Obey Your Faith, uh, and I'm excited about the culmination of where we're landing. Remember the very first, the very first talk, it seemed like two weeks ago, the very first talk, uh, I talked about what it meant to have a foundation on, of Jesus and how Paul kept his foundation by landing on Jesus, right? That's where he always landed, was on Christ. And tonight, that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to land. We're going to land on Jesus tonight. And before that, I'm going to tell a story. Um, not, about, not about my middle school years, unfortunately. This is a story from this week, actually. Um, uh, it's a really, really moving story, too. I didn't know when I was going to use it. I knew I had to, and, and I'm going to use it now. Uh, I was actually with Jeremy and his family at the bowling alley a few, a few days ago. Uh, at the rec center, and I was kind of preparing for a talk, and I'm watching Jeremy's family bowl, and it was fun to see them bowl, and I, saw, I realized Jeremy's a little, a little uh, competitive uh, by his attitude. It was fun to see, because I'm competitive. And, and at some point during that time, I, I looked over, uh, there's kind of, I think, I don't know how many lanes are, there, like four or five lanes? Uh, and on the other side of the lanes, there's only his family bowling, and on the other side, I saw this other family sit down. It was this couple, this, this family, his parents, and their I don't know, 40s or 50s maybe, and they just had one little daughter, a sweet little girl, probably eight or nine, uh, and she was sitting down, you could tell she was excited about being there, and the dad was so sweet, the dad was so loving, and just was patting her on the head and saying, I'm so happy to be here with you, and just really encouraging to her, and uh, just being really, really attentive to her, and, and so I, you know, that's sweet, it's a family, and I look back, and I noticed she had a, uh, she had a cane, she had a little cane, I was like, oh, okay, maybe she has trouble walking, or maybe she doesn't, um, you know, she's having some kind of disability, so I was like, oh, okay, that's really, really sweet Family's loving her and taking her on vacation, even in the midst of this disability. And so I'm sitting here, I'm typing away, I'm coming up with an illustration for dependence or something like that. I'm talking to Jeremy, and it was a video. I was downloading a video of that race. And I look back, and the family's bowling. I'm like, oh, that's cool, they're bowling. And, and I notice, as she was walking up to the lane, her dad was helping her. And I noticed that she wasn't looking in front of her. She was looking around because she was blind. It's a sweet girl, and I thought, wow. And this is where you realize, I, Hallmark commercials make me cry, okay? Um... <laughs> I cried at the end of, like, the Lego movie, right? Okay, so, like, I'm, I'm not kidding. You're going to ask my wife. I was tearing up in the Lego, the Lego movie. Um, so I'm a crier. I'm a crier. Um, 
And uh, I'm a crier. And so I, I'm starting right then. I was like, oh, the, the heartstrings were pulled. You know, this sweet blind girl is, is bowling, and her family's taking her bowling. And like, how does a blind girl bowl? She can't see anything. She doesn't know what, a, she doesn't know what even, or she's even throwing it. And, I was like, oh, it's, oh, it's so sweet and tender. And so I go back and look back in a little bit. And they have, I don't know if you've seen those, those things for little kids or, or I guess for blind folks, those like big shelves where you put a ball and they just push it. I guess all they do is like knock the ball and it rolls in the direction you aim it. And I saw that set up. I'm like, oh, that's sweet. And as I looked over there, I realized that the, the mom and dad weren't bowling at all. And the only reason they were there bowling with this little girl is because they wanted her to feel the joy of, of doing something that she normally wouldn't or shouldn't even be able to do. Uh, and as I noticed, as she, as she started you know, rolling the pins and their family, I realized she really wasn't doing, of course, of course not, she wasn't doing anything. She was just standing there, not even looking at the lane. She was just standing here next to this shelf and her dad would take her hand, her sweet hand, and put it on the bowling ball and kind of pat it, and then just take her hand and kind of push the ball and it would roll down. And I just started to be moved by that. I just started to be really moved. I started to think, this is a girl that can't do anything. Has no idea really what's going on. Uh, but she's able to, because of the help of her father, do this thing. And as that culminated, and I was watching uh, Jamie's family bowl, at one point I look over, and, and she, she's there, and her dad kind of pushes, they're, they're keeping score, and her dad pushes it for her, and she's listening. So all she does is listen. It's so sweet. She wasn't even looking at the lane. She gets to listen to the, bowl, the ball go down the lane and hit pins. And her dad would tell her how many pins she got. And so she, literally all she's doing is standing there with her cane in her hand and her dad would push. And, would, and she knocked down like eight pins. And by this time, the rest of Jeremy's family, the kids and everybody were kind of watching a little bit. And we, I mean, they're, they're sitting there ready to bowl. They're looking. And this ball goes down and it knocks over these eight pins. And just all of us sort of were like, hey, like good for you. And you could tell she heard that and she started to cheer when, when, the, when the pins got knocked over. And there's this little sweet girl being celebrated Right? And finding victory. And she's not, she's not able to do anything, but she is. So then there's these two pins left. I'm like, okay. This is a sweet little story. She gets knocked down eight pins. What are the chances? And her mom lines up the thing, and her dad lines up the And by this point, we stop bowling on this lane. And like everybody's looking at this sweet girl, Abigail, this blind, sweet eight year old girl, Abigail, just sit there. And her dad kind of put the, the, the pin in place. And you know, you can't bend the rules in bowling. If you miss, then it's going to reset it. So this is her one shot. She put her hand there, and she's just listening. All she's, she's staring this way, the, the lane, and her dad just pushes the ball. And sure enough, I'm standing. At this point, I, I'm, like, emotionally invested. So I'm, like, spotted up behind, and I'm, like, turning on the line. I'm, like, I'm, like, watching. Jeremy's right here on my right, and the ball goes down. And sure enough, that thing's on the straight line. And this ball, and you can see all of us were, like, and this ball, sure enough, nails these two pins and she gets a spare and as soon as she did that all of us were like hey you did it your their dad said you got a spare and this little girl i kid you not just is not even looking she can't see just literally just jumps into the air like this and just squeals and giggles with this immense joy and at this point i'm sitting here like <laughs> and, and Jeremy, and Jer I'll give Jeremy, he leans over to me and he's like you've been sitting here this whole time downloading this video for this illustration and he's like, you know what we just saw? We just saw a girl who, who can't do anything. And is sitting here in this exercise, trying her best, putting her hand on a ball, can't do anything. And her father is doing everything for her. Her father is going through this exercise for her. But yet when the spare was made, she was the one who got the score. And she was the one that was celebrated and overjoyed. And Jeremy said that to me, and my line to Jeremy, I think, was like something along the lines of like, I put my hand on his shoulder and said, 
I cry really easily, and I just left. <laughs> I just walked out the door. Um, uh, I, was over, I was overwhelmed with that moment. And, and why do I share that story now? You can probably guess because of the direction of what our week has been. Uh, but I, I loved seeing this real-life, practical bowling alley and a camp in Colorado moment of this moment uh, of this individual that, that knows that will spend the rest of her life depending upon others work for her to help her get by. And yet in this special moment, something that she is putting in herself, she's cooperating with her dad, she's putting her hand up there, her dad's hands on her pushing this ball down. But she is getting the score. She is getting the credit. She is the one being exalted and celebrated in this moment because really of the work of her father, the obedience of her father in that moment. Uh, and she needed to depend. She, and for the rest of her life, she will need to depend, to depend on what other people are doing for her in order to get by. And in this moment, she's depending on what somebody else was doing for her, yet she was the one given credit and celebrated. And I, and I thought to myself, this, tonight as I was preparing, we just forget that, guys. Whether we have a series all about obedience and lists, or we have a series all about counting upon Christ and no lists, we forget that our call to obedience is rooted and founded in the faith of another person's work. Our call to obedience is rooted and grounded in, in, in a work that has already been done on, on somebody else's effort and time. And our, our obedience is rooted and grounded not just in our faith in Jesus in general. We tend to do that. We tend to get ju- the reason we don't understand the gospel sometimes is just, we think of things in kind of nebulous, broad terms. I have a faith in Jesus Christ. Our call to obedience is a faith in Jesus Christ and his obedience right? His obedience is, is the centerpiece, is the centerpiece to what, to our faith in him and for our salvation and our own obedience. It's not in this, oh, I have a faith in the story of Jesus. I have this, I have faith in this, this idea of Jesus. Oh, who Jesus is. Those things are true, but in a much more direct and, and, and concrete way. In Jesus Christ, in his finished, obedient life and death on a cross, and the faith that that work has, is what justifies. Remember that talk we looked at earlier? That work, that obedience, 100% is what justifies us, not our own obedience. And when we forget about his perfect obedience, which is, by the way, what we're looking at tonight, is, is the perfect obedience, the obedience of Jesus Christ. Laser point. Um, when we forget about his perfect obedience as our, hear this, only, our only hope, we get caught in a cycle. And this is the cycle that I'm going to just throw out there because I, I, I pray against this cycle in us as we go home here in a couple of days. When we forget about the perfect obedience of Christ and the fact that, that it is his work on our behalf, right, and his obedience and not ours, when we forget that, this happens. We get inspired on camps like this to go home and obey. The point finally comes when our faith goes through a struggle or weakens. Our obedience fails in that moment, and we experience shame. And when we experience shame and guilt, 
we walk away from Christ and his obedient work, not toward it. So in other words, the last possible thing that I want us to go home and do is be inspired and excited about being obedient. Because when we, we get the cycle of, I want to be obedient, eventually our faith is going to hit a rough spot. Our obedience is going to finally fail. Because why? Because we're sinful. We cannot be obedient. Let that term set you free tonight. You cannot be obedient. And we can't be obedient, we feel shame, and we walk away from the gospel. We walk away from the cross because of our shame. When the perfect obedience of Christ calls you to himself, calls you to the cross, calls you to a relationship with him. And so the question I'm going to ask tonight is this. What does it mean that Christ was obedient? And why, why does it matter to us? It's all we're asking tonight. What does it mean that Christ was obedient? And why does that matter? Tonight, if you're disappointed in this, I'm sorry, but tonight, this is not a talk about us. This is a talk about Jesus Christ. It's a talk about his obedience. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. I have three, three points I want to hit on tonight. Three quick points on Christ's perfect obedience, and then we're going to be done for the week. So let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for this week. We thank you uh, for the relationships that have been built. We thank you for the teaching that we've heard from your word um, from so many different places. We've heard and learned so much. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us excited about going home and responding to what we have heard. The book of Acts talks about the apostles of Christ saying, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. And we want to go home, Lord, and we want to not be able to help but speak and live the things that we've heard. But Lord, we need your Holy Spirit tonight to protect us from doing that in our own effort, our own righteousness, our own power, our own obedience, and to root and ground ourselves in where we started, the foundation of you, Jesus, and your perfect obedience. Thank you for being obedient, Christ, and help us to understand that more tonight. We pray this in your name. Jesus, amen. Three ways, three ways is what we're looking at tonight, that Jesus Christ was obedient, and why does it matter to you, and why does it matter to what we're talking about this week? And the first thing that we're going to look at is that Jesus' Jesus's obedience, his perfect obedience, was a perfect first, a perfect incarnation. Who can tell me, what does the word incarnation mean? It's not a flower. What is, it, what is incarnation, Josh? Okay, it's a great way of putting it. Coming into the flesh. Do we want to add to that? Want to round that out at all? Coming into the flesh? Yeah? Okay. Taking on, not only coming into the flesh, but taking on our human likeness. We're going to look at Philippians 2 tonight a lot. If you want to turn there and put your finger in it, we're going to be in Philippians 2 a lot tonight. These terms, coming into the flesh, John 1, and Philippians 2, taking on human likeness. We're going to look at that tonight. So, so turn to Philippians 2 if you want. We're going to be bouncing in and out of there throughout the night. But this idea of Jesus is coming onto the... We, think, we talk a lot about Jesus' obedience and his death. His incarnation was a perfect incarnation. And what do I mean that? What do I mean by that, I should say? Uh, a couple things we're going to look at. Uh, first is John 1. John 1 is a very unique gospel. John 1 tells the story of Christ in a different angle, in a different way than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And one of the ways it does that by describing the very beginning of the book. Uh, other gospels start with either uh, kind of the beginning of Christ's ministry and his baptism or his birth. John scrolls back the story a little bit further. And so I'm just going to read 
the beginning of John 1, okay? I put up John 1, 14 here for us, but I'm going to read a good chunk of, of John 1 to begin our story tonight, to begin our story of the obedience of Christ. We're going to get to know Christ right now a little bit by reading John 1. Um, so just if you're not in John 1, that's fine, but just listen along and follow along with me. John 1, 1. In the beginning, sound familiar? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything, was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I'm going to skip down just a little bit. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as, listen, Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is the one of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. It's a pretty amazing beginning of the story of Jesus, right? We, don't, we forget, we don't think all the time that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was there at creation. And in fact, John 1 tells us all things were made through him. So when we think of the beginning of creation, we think of, we think of in our mind God the Father, this, like, this old bearded God in our minds who was kind of speaking all things into being. God the Father was certainly present and real in creation as well as the Spirit. But Jesus, the Son of God, was present and all things were made through Christ at the very beginning of time. John 1 is different from the rest of the Gospels because it says this, that Jesus Christ is the, the, not a eternal God, not another eternal God, but Jesus Christ, who we know in the flesh, is the, the eternal God. And John 1 is revealing to us that Jesus, even in his incarnation, even in his becoming flesh, did you read that? Even when the word became flesh, among, therefore we have seen his what? We have seen his glory. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father. I wrote that up there. The word became flesh and we've seen his glory. His incarnation, his becoming flesh, was not a becoming flesh like we have. Not a flesh that, that we... Now, he has the same flesh, and we're going to look at that in Philippians 2 in a moment. It is the same flesh and the same likeness of man, but it was unique in that it was a perfect incarnation. He didn't give up, in other words, any bit of his divinity. He didn't didn't sacrifice any little bit. He was 100% God. But mysteriously enough, 100% man. He possessed perfect glory of the Father and did not give it up. Scripture in John 3.17, we all know John 3.16, right? We talked about this in our panel earlier. What's John 3.16? It happened the first time, too. Turned into, like, speaking tongues. Um, 317, right after that, it says, it says this. God did not send his son. 
God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Guys, the incarnation of Jesus was the beginning, was the beginning of a grand rescue plan by the Father to come get back his people. And it says here in John 3.17 that the Father sent the Son. Christ was sent on a mission to, to take on flesh and be amongst men. And he was obedient to his Father. The Son did not say, no, I can't do that. The Son did not refuse. The Son was sent. He uses that word sent. He was sent on a mission with a purpose and a goal. And he was obedient. He was obedient to the Father's plan. What I call his love mission to come get his children. And Jesus was obedient to going after that. What, and why, why is that obedient? Why, why would we call that obedience? Here's where I'm going to turn to Philippians 2. Why would we call that obedience? Why would we say that he had to put his head down and say, yes, I, I will do this? Well, Philippians 2, verse 9 says this, and speaking of Jesus, who, meaning Jesus, though he was in the form of God, he was God, did not count Listen to this. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Don't overlook the power of that statement. God himself, Jesus, in the beginning, through which all things were made, the Son, the holy, most powerful, most perfect being in all of the universe, God, was obedient to not count equality with this divinity that he possessed a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. We in this room have a hard enough time making ourselves nothing in this, for the sake of others. Think about that. You as a broken high school student, you have a hard enough time making yourself, humbling yourself for the sake of others. This is the God creator of all things of the universe making himself nothing by being put in the likeness of men. That's powerful. And it's obedient. It's obedient to say, I will do this. My Father has sent me, and I will be obedient to my Father's will. That is why it is obedient. Second point I want to make, Jesus is a perfect incarnation. His perfect obedience is a perfect incarnation. But also the... Jesus was obedient in living a perfect life. It's a perfect life. Our lives of men, as men, that the history of humanity has been a history of sin, a history of rebellion, a history of fallenness, from our very first father, Adam. A failure before God. And ever since Adam, every single one of us, all of humanity, has been stained by sin. For what reason? That Adam, the first Adam, Adam in the garden, we're going back to the garden, disobeyed the words of the Lord. And in that failure to obey, in his rejection of obedience, sin entered the world. And since then there has been a curse upon mankind. We have been under the curse of Adam, the curse of the first sin. We have been under the curse of our own sin ever since that moment. And because it was a man that was not obedient, because it was the creation, the human of man, it was disobedient that brought this curse. There needed to be a man who didn't fail. For there to be any hope for salvation or redemption or restoration or all things being made new, specifically humanity being made new, there, there had to have been a man. There must have been a man. There needed to be a man 
who did not make that initial failure that Adam did. We needed what the Bible calls a second Adam. A second Adam who, in the form of man, as we just looked at, encountered sin, encountered temptation, faced those same things that Adam did, yet did not give in to temptation and did not give in to sin. 1 Corinthians 5, don't turn there, I'll, I'll just go there now. 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 15, uh, puts it this way. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now why is it that, that, that Christ can be called the second Adam, the one that has reversed the curse of death to life? Because he came, and not only did he be a perfect incarnation, God as man, he came and lived a perfect life. He was 100%, never for a moment, not obedient. He was obedient in every single possible way. And as we're going to look at it in a moment, for a perfect sacrifice to be made, there must be a perfect life. There is no perfect sacrifice without a perfect life, a perfect obedient life before. If Christ had sinned, if Christ for a moment had said, well, okay, I'm just going to tell a little fib here and lie to my buddy John, no longer is that in a, perf a perfect life, and no longer is Christ a savior. No longer would Christ be available to be a, a perfect sacrifice. But the reason that we know that he could be a perfect sacrifice is that we know that he led a perfect life without sin. Now, why is that obedience? Why is that obedience? Well, not only, and I want you to hear this, we think, okay, they did all of God's laws. It's true. God has laws, and Jesus obeyed every one of those laws perfectly. However, it isn't just that he obeyed God's law. He, like us, remember, found in human form and flesh, 100% man, experiencing humanity just like we do. He also experienced temptation, that story we looked at in the wilderness a couple nights ago. He experienced temptation. He felt temptation in the same way that you feel temptation. He experienced the temptation to sin in the same way that we have felt and endured the temptation to sin. In other words, he understands it. When you are experiencing temptation on your own, when that sin struggle that you're like, I just can't get over this sin struggle, Christ understands that temptation that enters into your life. He gets it because he felt it. I wrote it this way. He faced sin and he overcame sin. He overcame temptation, not only in the cross, but in an every day, every hour, every minute experience of our physical, broken, sinful world. Jesus, God of the universe, who... who spoke the stars into creation, who, who is by all things were made, as John 1 tells us. This God, this eternal God, who, who knows us by name, knows the hairs in our head, he walked in flesh, on dirt, in this, this body that we carry. He put it on and experienced the day-to-day -day life that we do, the day-to-day -day brokenness that we do, just like we have. Yet, as Adam failed... As Eve failed, as we all have failed, he faced, think about this, he faced that temptation the same way that we do, and he looked at it, and unlike anyone before him, he said no. He said no. 
Christ was God, incarnated, and he was God by being a leading a perfect life. You know why? One of the things that the Bible tells us is the way that Christ... He didn't do this, in other words. I've used this a couple times. I'm Jesus, so I have special Jesus powers. So really, I'm being tempted, but I'm not really being tempted because I'm Jesus. Okay? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that consistently through it, when you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read the Gospels, you know what you see Jesus doing? You see him going to his Father. You hear little moments and stories of Jesus going off by himself to pray. When he spent time in, the, in Galilee, in that area, and he was doing all kinds of miracles in the Sermon on the Mount, and he was making healings and all kinds of stuff, you know what it often talks about him doing? Going off on his own to pray. We took that, we, that story a couple nights ago. Before he started his obedient ministry, we you know what he did? He went to the wilderness for 40 days and nights to pray to his father. Before he did the great obedience of, of the cross, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane on his own, and he prayed to his father. You want to know why? Because Jesus, every day as a human being, drove himself in dependence upon his father because he knew so much more than we get. He needed his father Every month, every hour, every day, every minute, every second, he needed his father. So even as 100% God, he knew that his task, he knew that his mission was to come and be an obedient life and sacrifice. And he knew to do that, he needed to depend on his father. So you always see him driving himself in prayer towards his father, even teaching us how to pray to his father, asking for his father's will, not his own. And you know what Jesus didn't do on earth? This is, this is where I'm going to get application a little bit. You know what Jesus didn't do? Jesus didn't do this. Jesus didn't say, what's the least I can do to still get this whole Messiah thing taken care of? How can I still kind of have fun on this world and kind of do my own thing, but still do the least possible to do this whole Messiah Savior thing and then get the job done and go back? Right? That sounds preposterous that, that he would potentially do that, right? Of like, hey, how can I still kind of party with you guys and have some fun and kind of cut loose and be Jesus, and, but, but still not give, up my, not give up my saviorhood, not give up my messiahship? How can I ride that edge, cross that line a little bit? He never did that. He was always consistently driving to the holiness, the purity, the greatness of his father. And that sounds ridiculous that he would do that, but you know what? We do that every day. We make that mistake of obedience every day. And I, I, I did it this way. I, I have two things I want to show you. This is what Christ, I'm sorry, this is not Christ. This is, this is what I believe that we do in our pursuit of obedience. We have this, this image of Christ, the Lord in the middle, God in the middle, and everything outside of this circle is sin. And, and something that we often do is say, God, how close can I get to the edge how close, I call it living on the edge. How close can I get to this edge without, without sinning? I don't want to sin. I want to get to the edge. I want to look over the edge. I want to kind of see what's over there and maybe even kind of maybe dip my toe. But I want to stay on this edge. How close can I get to the edge and not actually sin? And not actually sin. You know how? Here's a practical way we do this. We've been talking about sexual sin recently. Here's a question that we've all heard or asked ourselves. I've had so many youth come to me over the years and say, how far is too far? How far can I go with my boyfriend without knowing it's too far? How far can I go with my girlfriend physically without knowing it's too far? And you know what that question is actually saying? How close to sin and away from the holiness of Lord can I actually get without feeling guilty and shameful about it? 
How can I still feel okay about being in God's, God's people and not sinning without actually feeling shame about it? When in actuality, our obedience should look a lot more like this. How can I get closer? How can I desire more? How can I need more? How can I long for more? How can I depend upon more? The holiness, the, the purity, the wonder of who God is. I want to get close to that. I want to be driven to that. I want to need and thirst for and hunger for that. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not blessed are those that push the line and edges of sin and holiness. We should be driven towards the cross, driven towards God's holiness and purity and and righteousness in our obedience. Not sitting on that, hey, God, am I still good? Am I still good, God? Okay, cool. Can I go a little bit further? What if I just do a little bit of this, God? Is that cool? We're we're just, we're sitting here and we're, we're enamored with sin when we ask the question, how far is too far? It's two days before I turn 21. Can I just drink a little bit? It's not a big deal, right? I can, I can get pretty close to that line. I can live on the edge like that. That question will always turn you away from the obedient question of, Lord, how can I get more of you? Jesus, how can I get more of you? Jesus Christ was an, lived an obedient life. And what he depended upon for that obedient life was driving himself daily to the presence and dependence of his Father in heaven. Last point I want to look at uh, is that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus was the perfect incarnation in his obedience. Jesus was the perfect life in his obedience. And finally, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice in his obedience. The truth is that Jesus perfectly becoming man in our incarnation and Jesus living a perfect life was not enough. If that was enough, this is the kind of God that we would serve. All right, guys, so, you know, you guys have been sinful for a while, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have my son come down, and he's going to live a pretty good life. And because he did that, I'm going to be pretty proud of him. I'm going to be proud of you guys, too, so I'm going to let you guys off the hook, right? That is a God without justice. We, trust me, we do not want a God who is not just. We do not want a God who is not just. We don't want, oftentimes we ask, why can't God, why couldn't God have just said, I just forgive you guys, it's all right, I love you so much, I, I forgive you guys. Why, why couldn't have God have just said, that would not have been a just God. When, when true evil and sin and wrong has been done, there must be a penalty, and that is a good thing. For those of you that are actually wise students, you'd know, you don't want a parent that whenever you do something bad or wrong or break a rule, they're like, it's all right, no big deal, I'm, I'm fine. You don't want that parent. Some of you are like, yeah, I do. No, you don't, you don't want that parent. Many of you that are wise and have thought about this say, I'm glad that my parents punish me when I rebel and do wrong things. I'm glad that my parents have a penalty for when I disobey them because that's justice, and justice is good and right. When it comes to our relationship with the Lord, we must have a true and understanding reality of what our sin is and what our sin is against the Lord. I believe that one of the hard things about understanding the gospel and what the sacrifice of Christ meant is that we, and we talked about this earlier, we don't really have a true and genuine full sense of just what our sin is and how deep it goes. 
it comes to the idea of parents and kids. I think that, that we look at our sin in God in the way of like, okay, so you gave me some rules to do, and then I broke about six or seven of them, and like, I'm sorry, I'll vacuum tomorrow to make up for it, right? When in reality, in our relationship, to put it in a parent-son relationship, sin against God, this is still a, a, a weak example, sin against God is as if we knew that our parents were out of town, we came home, we took all the money, we stole all the money that our parents have in the safe under the bed. We took gasoline, poured it over the whole house, and lit that sucker on fire and ran away. That, that is an obedience that you can't imagine that your parents would ever forgive you for. That is a, that is a, a, a disobedience that you can't even imagine why anybody would do that. And our sin is incomprehensibly worse than that. That is a a weak and pathetic human parent, human child example. We have sinned against the most holy and pure and perfect God who literally breathed us into existence. And our disobedience and our sin has turned away from him and said, I want to be God, not you. That sin deserves one thing and one thing only, guys, death. The only thing that... here. If God was, was we've talked about fair, that's not fair, you know, predestination, that's not fair. If God was fair, we wouldn't be sitting in this room right now talking about any hope of the gospel. If, if, if God was fair, there would be no hope. The reason that we can sit in, this gospel, sit in this room is because of a gift of grace that is not fair. It is not fair that Jesus Christ, the one and only perfect son of God, took what we have what we should have had on the cross. We're not getting, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting fired up. I'm just going to tone that down for a second. We want a God of justice. And our disobedience brought a just penalty. And here's the just penalty that we all deserve. In a just world, here's what we all deserve. We deserve eternal separation from God in hell. I know that hell is one of those sticky words that people like to avoid. We deserve eternal separation from God and eternal punishment in hell. That is what our just rewards are for who we are. The only thing that could have intervened was a perfect sacrifice to take our place for that. Our sin, remember when we looked at a little bit ago, Ephesians 2, we were dead because of sin, we were dead in our transgressions. That word dead means no hope, no finish, can't bring them back. It's over, sayonara, game over, done. It's finished. There is no hope for humanity. That is what it means that you were dead. Your transgressions have made us dead. Dead in our trespasses. And when it was unthinkable, when it was unknowable, when it was something that no human being could have ever come up with, God intervened by sending a perfect incarnation and a perfect life. And what we're about to look at as a perfect sacrifice. We, we breeze over and forget about, and we get bored by this idea of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And you read the Old Testament, sometimes you hear about sacrifices, and sacrificing goats, and sacrificing lambs. And, and we're like, okay, that's cool. They had a sacrifice back then for some reason, whatever. It's actually really important for us to remember. Because in the Old Testament, animals were sacrificed because our God is just, and there needed to be a blood 
death sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins. So when I sinned on any given day, when I didn't keep the law of God in Old Testament Israel, I needed to go to the temple and I needed to bring an animal or the the priest would provide an animal for me. And using the priest as an in-between, I had to go to the temple and I had to give a sacrifice. A, a, A blood must have been shed and an animal must have died and that smoke must have gone up into heaven as a sacrifice to take, to take the punishment away that I deserve. That animal, in, in the reality, took away in his death and blood my punishment. And God said, I will use this sacrificial system as a, as a providence to allow my grace to continue to go forth. Yet, animals shedding blood and being sacrificed, are, that's not a perfect sacrifice. It's an animal. It's not a final sacrifice. It was a temporary. So every time I broke the law, every time I did something, and the Old Testament talks about this, every, Leviticus talks about every time I did broke any rule, I had to get an animal and I'd go, because the first one doesn't matter anymore. I had to go and give another animal and sacrifice it, and more blood had to be shed. And that system could not remain. There needed to be sin cried out for a final sacrifice a final and perfect sacrifice for sin to be perfectly and finally dealt with. A perfect and final sacrifice had to be made. And guys, the only option in the book was that to be God himself. No man could put his nose at the grindstone and get it all done and try to die for humanity. It couldn't happen. We're sinful by nature. God himself had to step in and intervene and be that final and perfect sacrifice. Going back to Philippians 2, describes it this way. We just talked about how Christ took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Right after that it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We know the story well. We've heard it. Christ knew what was before him. And he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray for his father, if he could, to take that cup of wrath away. And he said, not my will, but your will be done, Father. And the false accusations began to spread. And the guards came, and his apostles for the moment fought for his honor. But Jesus said, no. Like a lamb before his shears is silent, Christ said no. And Christ willingly, although perfect in the form of God, handed himself over to men that he created. Jesus willingly handed his flesh over to men who he knew their names, he knew the amount of hairs on their head, he knew who they were better than they knew themselves. And he handed himself over to the authorities. And he submitted himself to a trial of the Jews who mocked him, who railed against him, who made fun of him and laughed and jeered at him, and even physically abused him. And he submitted himself silently as a perfect Sacrifice, And he was taken before the government. He was taken before Pontius Pilate, knowing that he had lived the perfect incarnation and perfect life. And he submitted himself to unfair accusations and unfair, an unfair trial and was called guilty 
and was called, in fact, somebody that reserves death more than a filthy, terrible criminal who had done so many things that he deserved death numerous times over. And Jesus accepted, he accepted that, that call. And after that, he was mocked, he was kicked, he was punched, he was taken to a place where they punish those that have done wrong, and he was whipped, he was taken, his clothes were taken off. And humbling himself as God, as perfect, endured, bore his back, and endured the whips of a cat of nine tails that was done by men that were experts in anything in the world. They were experts at whipping men and ripping the flesh off of their bodies. The cat of nine tails was not a regular whip. It was a whip that was equipped with all kinds of sharp pieces of glass, uh, pieces of pottery, pieces of all kinds of different material attached to these whips so when it hit the skin, when it hit the back and was pulled, flesh would be torn off. And these men were so good at it, they did it so much, they knew how to beat a man within a very whip of his life. And like a lamb before his shears were silent as a perfect sacrifice, Jesus bowed to it and endured it in our place. And after that, they gave him a cross. They gave him a large wooden cross, much, much bigger than something like this, a heavy cross that most men couldn't carry on their own. And with an exposed back of most likely exposed muscle tissue, this wooden, grainy cross was laid upon his back, and he was told to carry it on his own. We know that he couldn't. He needed help. And he carried this large, heavy cross that was a symbol of death. We see it as a symbol of hope and life. But at the time, it was a symbol of embarrassment and death. It would have been the equivalent of a man carrying his own electric chair today to the place of his death. And Christ being mocked, being railed against, being called all sorts of names. Not the only name that he reserved, that he deserved, which was king of all things of creation and son of God. No one was calling him that anymore, even though days before they said, Hosanna, these very people, much like our hearts, had suddenly turned and now said, no, you are a liar, you are a blasphemer, and this Jesus, this sheep before his shears is silent, this perfect sacrifice, carried this cross and endured it to Golgotha, to Calvary in which he continued to be mocked and embarrassed, continued to have his clothes stripped from him, continued to have be mocked as king of the Jews, had a crown of thorns, not a thorn on a rose bush that you find in your backyard, but a thorn that I have seen in that land of Israel where I've been and visited, thorns that are roughly this long that you can't break with your hands if you tried, thorns that resemble nails in some way that we would, would imagine were smashed into his head, into his skull, creating blood pouring down his face, has already bloodied and bruised face and after all of that he was laying in embarrassment on a cross I want everybody to feel right now put your thumb on your wrist right here in that moment nails on this lamb before his shears was silent perfect sacrifice on our behalf nails were driven into his wrists his legs his ankles were folded over and a larger nail was pierced through his ankles And this cross was heaved up for all to see this blasphemer, this king of the Jews. No, this king of all creation. This holy and pure God who 
could name every essence of every story of every life of every man and woman in front of him in that moment. He knew all of them better than they knew themselves because he created them, subjected himself to this. When he was up there long enough, he began to run out of energy and he had to let his body hang putting pressure on the nails. And sooner or later, people usually with crosses, they didn't die from blood loss. They didn't, cro- they didn't die from the, the wounds. They died of asphyxiation, of running out of breath. Because every, whenever he needed a breath, Jesus wanted to pull himself up on the nails to get a breath and then drop again. And most men in, hang- I'm sorry, in cross hangings died of running out of breath. And Jesus hung. And Jesus endured it. And like a sheep before his shears was silent, said not a word. Because he was the perfect sacrifice. And he did it because he was sent by his father on a mission of love. On a mission of grace. Jesus, the son of God, his father, they love us so much he was willing to be a sheep before the shears silent, a perfect sacrifice in your place so that your name no longer is dead in your trespasses, but your name is now beloved and forgiven son and daughter of the most high God. That is why Christ came to be a perfect and final sacrifice. And none of the reasons that we just looked at, none of the things that happened to him that we just looked at were the worst. None of those were why he trembled and sweat blood in the garden. The reason he trembled before his father and sweat blood in the garden was for that moment when, as Tim Keller puts, when in that moment before his death, when all of the the sin, every sin ever committed by all of humanity for all of time was upon his back and his blood was in the process of covering it and washing it white as snow forever, he looked up to find, remember how I talked about the dependence of being driven to his father for all his life and that's what he depended on, that's what he looked at, Abba, Father, Daddy, I'm looking at you, help me, Help me, I need you. He looked up into his father, and as Tim Keller says, instead of seeing his father and his grace before him, hell stood before him. His father was not there. The cup that Jesus spoke of in the Garden of Gethsemane was the cup of his father's wrath that we, we deserved to drink, that was ready to be sent to us And Jesus took that cup in that moment when he looked up and expected to see his loving, dependent father in front of him. He saw hell before him, and he took the cup of God's wrath against the sin of all humanity, and he drank that cup to the last drop. There is not a drop of God's wrath for you anymore. Hear that right now. I don't care how screwed up you think you are. I don't care how much porn you have looked at in your life. I don't care how sexually active you are. I don't care how many, what kind of words you've said. I don't care how many times you've been drunk. I don't care how many times you've said blasphemous things about your Lord. Every cup, every drop of God's wrath was drank by the perfect sacrifice. Sheep before his shears was silent on that cross. And there is no wrath left for you today. 
that is what the perfect sacrifice, the perfect obedience was. And when he looked up and saw his father not there, and that cup of God's wrath was drank, the most beautiful, the most profound, the most hopeful, the most inspiring, the most incredible words that have ever, ever been uttered on our human earth were uttered. Jesus cried out, It is finished. And then he gave up his spirit. And he gave himself over to death to what we know three days later would be arising triumphantly from the grave to defeat death and sin forever. And when Jesus Christ said, it is finished, that it is finished said that every obedience that God has ever called man to has been obeyed. Because it was obeyed not by us ever, but was obeyed by Jesus Christ in his perfect incarnation, his perfect life, and his perfect death. And that was why Jesus could cry out triumphantly, it is finished. Sinners at YXL, it is finished. Why have I not given you a list this week? Because it is finished. Why have I not been concerned about telling you how to be a better Christian this week? Because it is finished. Why haven't I given you a bunch of tips how to go and do a great quiet time when you get home? Because it is finished. And that word belongs to Jesus Christ and never us. We can never cry it is finished because our Lord and our foundation, Jesus Christ, has already said it. Our disobedience in that moment on the cross, all of our disobedience, we've been talking about this week, it was given, it was imputed. Our sin and disobedience was imputed to him. And his obedience and his his righteousness was imputed to us. Think about this, guys. Christ's obedience and his righteousness is now yours. I don't care what you do tomorrow. I don't care what you do when you get home from YXL. Nothing you do can make you lose the fact in faith that Christ's obedience and Christ's righteousness belongs to you. When Christ stepped on the throne in heaven, he looked at humanity and and said, they are mine. They belong to me. So when God looks at you in your worst, most scary moment, in that, in the dark of my room, I hope nobody sees or hears about this moment, you know who sees you still? God. And you know who he sees when he looks at you in that moment? He sees Jesus Christ, your foundation. Not you. Not you. What is our response to this? We're almost done. Our response is this. We're going back to Philippians 2. Remember this Jesus, this perfect obedience, this perfect sacrifice. Remember that he was found in the form of God as a form of God, but he didn't count equality as a God, as, as God as a thing to be grasped. Remember that he made himself nothing. Remember that he took the form of a servant. Remember that he was born in the likeness of men. Remember that he was found in human form. Remember he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death. Remember that he humbled himself to even death on a cross. And you know what it says right after that? Therefore. God has what? Exalted him. We talk about glorification today. Christ is now seated on the throne in heaven. He has exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that, listen to this, guys. So that, what's your take home? What's your list? Here's your so that list. 
in response to the death and obedience of Christ. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is this series for? What is talking about obedience for? What is all the things that we've said and discussed this? It's to the glory of God the Father. It's to the glory of Jesus. That is what this week is about. It's not about us. And our response to this perfect sacrifice, this perfect obedience, is that every knee of ours should bow and every tongue of ours should confess that he is Lord. If you want to be like Jesus, if, you want to, if we want to, to think about what it means to have that kind of obedience, we can't have that kind of obedience. But as we go home, as we wrap up this week, here, here's, a, here's a few things I thought of, of what it means to follow and pursue in this obedience of Christ. Jesus says, pick, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Here's some practical things about how we can go home and think about what does it mean to, to follow this obedience of Christ. Guys, I talked about the Bible a couple nights ago. Don't just open the Bible and say, I've got to read the Bible. It's got this thing. I gotta, it's a tool. I've got to use it. Meditate on who Jesus is. Meditate on who, what Jesus has done. Read the Gospels. Go home and read all four of the Gospels three times in a row. Get familiar with who Jesus is in his word. Reflect on the Gospels. Journal about the Gospels. Journal about Jesus and who he's done and, and who he is and what he's done. Pray and pray with a focus on the marks and the, the characteristics of Jesus. And think about those characteristics if you read them. And pray and ask the Lord, help me to be more Christ-like in my obedience. Help me, Jesus, by your spirit and power and your grace. Spirit, work in me so that I would think in my day, I want to be humble like Jesus, not prideful like Tony. I want to be a servant like Jesus and not somebody who makes himself big like Tony. I want to be somebody who's pure like Jesus and not like Tony. Help me, Lord. Let me read about that and I, let me pray for that. Confess the ways every day that you deny Christ's likeness in your life. And ask for a leading into the ways in which you can desire him more. And finally, and we talked about fellowship the other day, spend time with people who want to be like Jesus. Unfortunately, I don't just mean Christians, guys. Unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians who don't really, are not all that concerned with, with, with living and being like and loving Jesus. Find the ones that you say, wow, they want to be like Jesus. For me, uh, it's, it, when I was growing up, it was a guy named Russ Ramsey. When I looked at Russ, I said, this guy wants to be like Christ. I want to spend time with Russ. I want to be around him. We have a pastor at a church, a guy named Jeff Loney. And when I look at the guy, the guy just wants to be more like Jesus. And, and, and I look at that. I want to spend time. I want to talk to Jeff. I want to pick his brain. I want to know how he thinks like that. Why has this whole series been worth it? Why did we talk about this? Um, and here's why. Because of Christ's obedience, we now have access to God by faith that we once never had a hope of having. Because of Christ's obedience, we now have a motivation and an ability to obey God that apart from Christ's obedience, we never would have had. Because of Christ's obedience, we now know that our standing with God isn't dependent upon you 
making a list and being a good Christian, we know that because of Christ's obedience, we are now in our standing with Christ, with God, because Christ said it is finished and was our perfect sacrifice. And to finish, guys, because of Christ's obedience, we are free today. We are free. We are no longer prisoners to our sin and our disobedience. But because of Christ's obedience, because a lamb before his shears was silent, and the perfect sacrifice and perfect obedience did what he did on the cross and rose from the dead, we are free to obey in faith, to obey in faith, by grace, and with joy. For God's the glory of God. What is this series on obedience about? Guys, it's about the glory of God being manifested in broken, humble sinners surrendering themselves to a Christ who has said it is finished and I am your perfect sacrifice. And us in humility and surrender said, yes, I want to obey you. Faith joy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for an undeserving people. Jesus, you have done so much. We cannot comprehend what it was to experience the punishment that you did, and the wrath of God. We will never experience it for those of us that have a true and genuine faith in you and your grace. Help us as we go home. Help us tonight to be moved by your grace, to be moved by your death, to be moved by your resurrection for us, and to cry in those moments of shame. I know that it is finished. We know that obedience is finished in you. Help us to obey. We pray this in your name, Jesus, amen. Hey, uh, I know it's not typical to uh, applause, give applause after a sermon. You guys, Tony was phenomenal this week.